and welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here with you once again, and we have a uh, very fun episode in store for all of y'all this week. Of course, we're starting to wind down Journal January here on the show, and to to do so, we had to welcome back Jack Murley from BBC Sport, uh, specifically the BBC Sport uh, LGBT podcast, um, or BBC, yeah, the LGBT Sport podcast. There we go. <laughs> sorry, it's that's yeah. All sorry, I'm a little frazzled at the moment, um, that for reasons that we'll get into here in just a second. But but no, Jack obviously has been on the show multiple times over the last like six months. You know, talking about the Big Gay Brunch UK as well as you know, he joined us for our QWI 200 episode back in December, um, and quickly has become somewhat of a of a friend in in the industry for me. And you know, I felt like you know we've had him on to talk about wrestling here and it would only be apt to have him back on to talk about himself and his own journey in in this space too so very excited to share that conversation with all of y'all and to hear a bit more about jack's story about you know not just covering wrestling but covering sports from an lgbt perspective over in the uk and we will have that conversation for y'all here in just a minute but before we uh jump into that um Obviously, there's things to talk about in the pro wrestling world right now. Um, I was prepared to kind of have this section of the show today, you know, really focused on an outstanding main event match um, uh, that we saw in Limitless, 50 minutes between Danger Kid and a Nagro in a severely emotional um, and violent battle. Uh, between the two members of the former MSP that was um, incredibly evocative and affecting, um, not to mention, you know, celebrating Raquel Pennington finally winning a UFC championship over this past weekend on the same card where, you know, so much about the, the talk around that was dominated by the abhorrent homophobic and transphobic comments made by Sean Strickland, at the uh, the, pr- the pre-fight press event there. Um, not to mention, you know, the Big Gay Brunch coming up this weekend. Um, so many outstanding matches. We're starting to see matches roll out for WrestleMania weekend now, you know, with some top names, you know, Daniel Maccabi against Edith Surreal. You got Demos against Matt Dog Conley coming up at the Dean event there in Jersey around that. Um, that it's just looks incredible um but you know we definitely celebrate all of those wins in a way but we can't uh we can't move forward without talking about the news that broke yesterday obviously the lawsuit filed by janelle grant against vince mcmahon john laurinitis and wwe proper alleging um multiple accounts of um (laughs) of sexual uh, assault, sexual misconduct, um, sex trafficking as well, not to mention, you know, battery and, you know, a lot of um, questions around the validity of the NDA that was signed by by Miss Grant uh, coming out of her, around her exit from the company in uh, February of 2021. 
Um, obviously, this story is is a ground shaker in a lot of ways, not because anyone was truly surprised by this, you know, uh, considering what happened in 2020, uh, 2022, um, you know, around the, the exit of, uh, McMahon from the company, um, the resignation of McMahon from the company ultimately to strong arm his way back into an executive role there leading into the sale of WWE to Endeavor and the forming of the TKO, uh, group um to encompass wwe and ufc there um not to mention the fact the you know the reports of you know, mcmahon's house being raided by the fbi um and the subsequent federal investigation that has been ongoing there um there's a lot of smoke to this fire that honestly has existed and has caused a lot of people to like know about what is going on here or to like have a very confident feeling about what has been allegedly going on in terms of, you know, Vince McMahon's treatment of female employees at the company, as well as other females, you know, we have multiple reports over the decades, um, you know, dating back to 1994 when Rita Chatterton came forward with her allegations of, of sexual assault, against McMahon like this is nothing new it's it's something that has kind of been a, a known thing or a talked about thing rather in pro wrestling circles for longer than I have even been a wrestling fan um if you want to even go further back look go back to the ring boy scandal and in, in the late 80s um it's distressing though it doesn't um it doesn't just because we had the, these feelings doesn't mean that it's not completely gut-wrenching. I mean, I'm talking to you here on the show. I have just finished reading the entire 67-page complaint that was filed yesterday by uh, Grant and her attorneys. And um, I can safely say, like, it's one of the most um, – affecting things that I've ever read personally. I had to take a break in, in the midst of reading it. I started reading it. Um, I'm recording this Friday morning. I started reading it Thursday morning and I just, you know, I put out the tweet about like stuff that I've been going through and, and starting to read that. Like I feel bad, but I just could not bring myself to like f finish it on Thursday just from my own mental health. Um, but I have finished reading it now and I don't want to get into like the nitty gritty details here because there's a lot of just truly horrific stuff that is being alleged by, by Grant in, in this document. I would suggest that if, if you feel like you can handle reading incredibly explicit accounts of sexual assault, and um, just grooming and degradation. Um, I would suggest that you read the full document. I understand that not everyone's going to be able to, and I completely, I completely understand why. Because who would want to subject themselves to this kind of trauma reading at points? Um, you know. It can be incredibly triggering for a lot of people. I mean, it, it, it was triggering for me in some ways. Um, but what it really points to, and obviously it, it points to 
kind of it's not confirmation because these are allegations right but it's just the latest it's the latest example of the pattern of behavior that we have seen by Vince McMahon and by connection WWE in terms of exploitation and you know I've seen a lot of people in the day or so that that has passed since this dropped that have you know been talking about Vince specifically in this because Vince is a major is like he is a key figure in all of this right but um this is about so much more than Vince you know obviously last year um whenever Vince strong-armed his way back onto the board of WWE um his place as executive chairman actually we we made the decision on this show to not cover WrestleMania um because new out of out of disgust at the circumstances around McMahon's return to the company you know and I made the statement as long as McMahon held a position on the board of directors at that company I was not going to cover WrestleMania or like WWE really as a whole for the most part and you know we're still holding to that this year you know who knows what the circumstances around McMahon's involvement with WWE will be come WrestleMania time I don't know that honestly that doesn't really fucking matter at, at this juncture um just because it's not about what I or any other member of the press does in terms of like a response to this. It's more so about Janelle Grant's story and getting her story out there, her debilitating story that is just, it just rips at you to read it and to see what she went through and to see where it has left her. Um, I express uh, an immense level of admiration for her being able to find the strength to, you know, take this into the legal arena in the way that she is to talk, to just share the details that she did, you know, not just around her involvement with Vince, but also with John Laurinaitis, the, the former uh, head of talent relations at WWE, as well as, you know, a person who isn't named in the lawsuit, but clearly, um, has been revealed to be Brock Lesnar um, in this too. Um, not to mention all the other corporate officers and employees who are not named in, in the complaint. It speaks to a culture in WWE that is absolutely vile and pervasive in a lot of ways. You know, I think there's been a lot of talk about how Aria, <coughs> excuse me, how Ari Emanuel responded to CAA, um, or not CAA, responded to, um, you know, other, um, like, representation um, groups, like other agencies uh, around Harvey Weinstein and that sort of thing. But, you know, obviously Ari Emanuel is head of TKO at this point. Um, he's effectively Vincent Mann's boss there. And I'm very curious to see what, he will say, considering that a lot of these allegations um, 
brought forth in, in Grant kind of point to that, that larger issue that we saw with Harvey Weinstein and so many others when the, the Me Too movement sparked up. It goes back to the Speaking Out movement in 2020 whenever pro wrestling had its own moment with that. Um, or his own reckoning with that, rather, um, that honestly hasn't really turned out to be too much of a reckoning considering some of the people that we still see employed in places. You know, um, we just had the conversation about Matt Riddle just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Wrestle Kingdom um, and a lot of the continuing issues around his uh, involvement and employment in the pro wrestling space. This is a Vince McMahon problem. This is a John Laurinaitis problem. This is a WWE problem. This is this is a pro wrestling problem. That this entire fucking industry needs to have a actual reckoning with. Because I'll be real with y'all. Whenever this dropped and I started reading it, there was a part of me that was just like, why do I even care about wrestling anymore? If this is what, like, the largest company in the world, the place that where so many people that either do not cover WWE from a journalistic perspective or are not really engaged in the, like, the fandom of pro wrestling, they don't call it pro wrestling whenever they see something that is, like, related to it. They call it WWE. WWE is synonymous with the term pro wrestling for so many people in this world because it's the only thing that they know. And to know that the company that is synonymous with pro wrestling for so many people across this globe is active, like there are allegations here, they are actively in, in helping to create a incredibly toxic work environment. People are turning blind eyes to sexual exploitation, to sex trafficking within their, um, within their offices allegedly within their within their own like employees allegedly um i don't blame anybody that had the similar feeling of just like what the fuck are we doing here what the fuck even is this thing like do i have love for this thing anymore and obviously like there are aspects of pro wrestling there are places and people within it that still deserve that love and pro wrestling as an art form deserves to exist and evolve into a place where it's not you know defined or beholden by something like this something like this case like these like these allegations that are being made by by Janelle Grant um but fuck does it feel hard to muster that energy right now you know and I just feel so much for for Grant, and I know that Grant isn't the only one. She's not the only one that we know signed an NDA with WWE with Vince McMahon. Um, and based off of you know the accounts of how that NDA was signed in in the complaint, you know it really it reads like coercion. You know, um, and I would not be surprised if there are similar circumstances around those other NDAs like this. Uh, I, this is just the beginning, I think of a lot more that we are going to see, you know, if, because clearly like based on like state and local laws, like this NDA is, it feels like this NDA is non, is like non-binding in a lot of ways. It was like kind of entered into in a way that is not held up by, by the laws there 
or that are being that are being brought up you know whether it be because of the the vagueness of language or because of the coercive nature of of entering into that agreement um or just the fact that you know the, this agreement basically was to protect sexual assault and that's uh that is illegal in connecticut um I don't know. There's, this is just the beginning of this whole thing. There's going to be more. I know that, that I, I genuinely, like, 99% feel that there's going to be more around this similar circumstance that's going to come out. And um, it's just... It gets to you. It gets to your core to see this sort of stuff. Vince McMahon should should be gone from that company. He should have been gone from that company in in twenty twenty two when he resigned and never should have come back. But he should have been gone from the, that company as soon as this was released yesterday. Um, there are so many other people that are still at that company, you know, that clearly were involved in some way, whether they had knowledge of the situation and did nothing about it, whether they um, had knowledge of the situation and actively engaged with it, with the situation there, um, or actively perpetuated some of this stuff. You know, like, this is not just a Vince McMahon problem. This is a WWE problem. This is a pro wrestling problem. And I swear to God, a UV light needs to be shined into this thing, into this thing that we love, because this is just debilitating to see. Of course, we're going to maintain our position here uh, on the show, and we're not going to be covering WWE, um, continuing to not cover WWE as long as... Um, these people are still involved with the company and we'll see where things go from here, but just so fucking gross to read. And again, I, I, I hesitate to recommend, but I also do fully recommend that if you can handle reading the document, read the document. If you can't, I totally understand, but especially for people that are, were supportive of Vincent Mann back in 2022 and through 2023, you know, and still are today, even with the, like, I don't understand how anyone can be after reading something like this, but there are still people out there that are supportive of Vince McMahon. I suggest you read the whole thing and then really sit and see how you feel about those feelings, about that loyalty that you feel. Because humanity trumps fandom. Humanity trumps nostalgia. You can't be blinded by these kind of things whenever real people are having their lives torn apart by the actions and honestly sense of power and narcissism of one man that is being empowered by a collection of, of men. Um, I can't say just men, but a collection of people rather allegedly, um, to to do these kind of things you just can't you can't okay 
Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about this further down the line too. Like I said, it's not the, this is the beginning, not the end. But um, for now, though, um, you know, we stand with Janelle Grant here on this show, and we'll leave it there for the moment. So um, let's move on and get into my conversation here with uh, with Jack Murley. What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? Welcome back to LGBT in the Ring. I'm very pleased to have as my guest this week returning to the show for what has to be, I think, the the most frequent like rate of like three-time appearances here on the show. But we can't close out Journal of January without having someone who has done an incredible amount of work for the LGBTQ pro wrestling scene over in the UK back onto the show. You know him as the host of the BBC LGBT sport podcast. I swear I will get that out one day without stumbling over it. I apologize. Please welcome back, Jack Murley. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm very well. Thank you for having me back. I, I guess I must be doing something right to, to come back onto your fabulous show so many times, but it is always a pleasure to, to get to talk wrestling with you. So um, an honor and a privilege to be back here again. Likewise, it, it is definitely I, one of the best things about I think the last like year of this show is getting to know you like obviously this is the third time you've been on in six months. You know, we've had you on previously to talk about Big Gay Brunch UK as well as talking about the, the QWI 200 at the end of the year last year. But this time it's a little bit different because we're talking we're talking about you specifically. We're talking about Jack Murley's journey as as a as a journalist here on as we continue journal January. So I don't know. I'm excited though. I'm excited to to talk to you a bit about your own personal journey. Yeah, I am as well because I don't get to do this very much because you know what it's like when 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 you do what we do. The best part is being a bit nosy and asking other people because other people are always more interesting than you. And actually, when someone turns the tables around and says, "Well, you know, let's dig in a little bit to your story," you go, "Oh, I can't remember the last time I've done that." And when you asked me, I thought, "Oh, I can't remember the last time I've done that." So I'm 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 here for it. It's it's going to be fun, I think. No, I think it will be too. I think that's one another like one of the many reasons why I enjoy doing this series every year, because like you said, like we don't always get to have that chance to like turn the table and talk about ourselves in a way, you know. And and I think opening up about that one, it's it's great just to have like I think it builds connection and that sort of thing. But two, you know, there are probably there are likely people listening to this show who might have a desire to get into this space, and I think the more that we can like recognize the people from our community within it, you know, that just proves to, I think, be more empowering in the same way that we talk about like the wrestlers who have like empowered people to enter the pro wrestling space as a whole. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. If, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it's true of wrestlers. It's true of valets. It's true of managers. It's true of people like you and me who scribble and write and talk about it for the great joy we have covering wrestling. So I'm I'm right there with you. Awesome. I'm glad we're on the same page. The <laughs> <laughs> awful it wasn't. Imagine if I said, no, I'm not going to do this at all. And I just went. That'd be terrible. It would have been weird if you had shown up just to tell me, no, I'm not going <laughs> to talk about anything. <laughs> good, good heel move, wouldn't it? That's it. it. That's what I do. So. Disappear. <laughs> it's like the reverse Mark Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, let's let's dig into to Jack Murley a little bit here because I feel like obviously a good place to start with any conversation 
around this sort of stuff is sort of the origin story of 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 whoever we're talking to. So I'm curious, like, when did pro wrestling kind of enter your life, so to speak? It's a really strange one because I was someone who came to it, I would say, relatively late compared to my friendship group. So I'm 35 years old now. So when I was at school in the UK, my friends were sort of watching the Attitude Era and, and beginning to get to grips with that. And it was like they were all enjoying it. And somehow I existed in this vacuum where I just had no idea what they were talking about. And so they were all loving wrestling. I didn't have a clue what wrestling was. No one in my family liked wrestling. No one in my family... I say no one. My great-great-grandmother liked World of Sport on the UK channels, I'm told. But no one really liked wrestling. And I stumbled across one Sunday afternoon on one of the free-to-air channels in the UK, Sunday Night Heat, which was broadcast bizarrely on Sunday afternoon in the UK. And I had never seen anything like it. I just was... It was like something had come down from another planet. And it was... You know what Heat was like. You'd get... A, a sort of an enhancement match, and then they'd show you the end of Raw. So I was watching this stuff, and I don't even know what it was on Raw, but Jim Ross was losing his mind. And I was <laughs> like, I don't know why this guy's so angry with this other guy, but man, I need to watch it. So the next week I came back to it, and I began to get hooked. And that was happening on the one side of things. And then bizarrely on the other side of things, I got given a voucher for a video game. And I went to the shops and I was like, what do I spend this voucher on? And I could have bought a football game. And I saw the first version, WWF Smackdown. And so I thought, mm. well, I'll pick that up. And I connected the two things together, that what I was watching and what I was buying were from the same product, the same family. And so I started playing the game and I got addicted to it that way. So those two things came together and that sort of gave me my grounding in wrestling. And from that point on, I was just hooked. I just couldn't get enough of it. It's, it's so interesting to hear that like a major piece of that like connective tissue for you was a, a video game like like Smackdown because you know in talking to you know interviewing wrestlers and everything like that like I've noticed more and more like there there is a num there are a number of people in the pro wrestling space that like their entry point was a video game I think we I just recently interviewed like Zay Perez, a, a wrestler out here in my neck of the woods in Pacific Northwest, who like really like playing like one of the camera feels like SmackDown versus Raw 2007 or something like that. But like one of those games that, in, that later on in the series that like really like proved their entry point into this too. Like what was it about that? Well, first off, when did you make the connection between the video game that you're playing is what you're watching? And what was that? Was that like a, an epiphany moment for you? <laughs> thing is i must have been playing the video game to a degree more before than i clicked with the wrestling because i remember not having a clue how to say vince mcmahon's name so i was seeing it written in the video game and i was saying well this fella's called vince mcmahon and i was thinking <laughs> <laughs> and then i was watching one of these heat episodes and i was like oh that's that's the guy from the video game that they're, they're sort of together oh i understand it now and because i'd been hitting various moves and stuff in the video game, you know, you'd earn your, your points and you'd get your stunner and you'd hit that or a rock bottom or whatever. Then you'd see the highlights on heat and you'd go, oh, that's that's the guy. That's what's going on there. And so it came together that way. It was a very, 
it doesn't say much for my intelligence that I didn't click before because they're not that different. But for some reason, I, I didn't realize. Um, <laughs> and then when they came together, I was hooked on this heat product. And, and in the UK, the way it worked, and it still works to a degree, is we have paper shows, paper channels, and then there's free-to-air channels. And the, I didn't have the pay channels, so I was only able to see four pay-per-views a year. And I can still remember it was Royal Rumble, was backlash it was fully loaded and it was armageddon those were the four on free to air mm. television at 1am in the morning and once i realized that instead of just getting heat four times a year i could get the, the real deal the full thing that was when i started begging my parents can can you take this for me can you do this can you do that i realized that some guys at the football club i played with they had tapes of the paid stuff so you know i would i would get a copy from them and that's when it became a really regular thing so you had your own like kind of like mini tape trading circle in a way there and <laughs> amongst yeah, your friends. It, it, it was it was actually the coach, a guy, a guy called Darren, who was sort of going, who who wants a copy of, I don't know, uh, No Way Out or something like that. And it would go from one to the other and then maybe I'd get it. But because my parents didn't know wrestling and it was the height of the Attitude Era. And, you know, I was young enough. I was fortunate later in life. I had a television in my bedroom, but at that time I didn't. So I had to go into the family you know, living room with the big TV, put in this tape and there's blood and gore and sex and everything that the Attitude Era is about. And my parents go, I'm not sure what he's watching here. I'm not sure whether this is something we want him to carry on doing. I had to beg to carry on watching it. I can understand that there was a period in my life back around, like I say, 1999, that that's sort of like a wrestling black hole for me because my mom like forbid me from watching anything for yeah. about a year. So I completely understand it, you know, like <laughs> with good reason. You can see, you know, I'm of the age now I don't have kids, but if I did and I saw some of the stuff that was there, I would go and, you know, I'm educated about the business now, but I'd still go, mm, I I don't know whether I'd want my kids watching it. But my uh, my dad was was not a professional athlete, but played sport to a good level. So did my mum. I think they could appreciate the athleticism. I think they knew enough that it wasn't quote unquote real so they didn't have to worry about that side of things and i think they were just happy that their geeky little kid had found a thing that he loved and they thought well it's not doing any harm he's he's never going to wrestle himself so let's let him enjoy it <laughs> now why would you describe yourself as geeky there oh be because i was i i am still a huge nerd and i'm i've embraced <laughs> my nerddom i i but if you'd seen me so so imagine harry potter okay that was me i had big wide gold rim spectacles i had a bowl haircut i had my mum didn't trust me not to lose things so i had a locker but i had to have the locker key on a shoelace around my neck like an evacuee in case i because i kept losing it i used to have a little not a briefcase but a little file of facts a file for all my notes in and i know i sound posh now i've had the edges knocked off me i i sounded incredibly posh and like that when i was a kid so mm -hmm. i was you know, I, I'd look at me as a kid and go, oh, what a geek. But I didn't know any different. <laughs> I didn't know any any better. Oh, I mean, there, look, life is about evolution, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I met a load of friends at one point who said, but, uh, without even knowing it, they basically went, you can't go through life like this. You you can't be this. You, you can't be quite so pompous, quite so posh, quite so you. So we're going to we're going to knock the edges off. And thank goodness they did. <laughs> Um, so obviously you start like building this love of, of pro wrestling, right? Um, at what point 
Well, I guess at what point did you realize that that journalism was something that you wanted to go into as a career first off? I completely fell into journalism because mm. I, I'm from, if you picture the UK, I'm sort of from the bottom sticky out bit that points towards your neck of the woods, that points towards the UK. It's very, uh, towards the US. It's a very rural part of the UK called Cornwall. Absolutely beautiful, but a lot of poverty. And I was never in poverty, but there was a poverty of opportunities. So the idea that I could go into journalism was something I, I never thought I would do. So I went to university did a history and politics degree, never, just never crossed my mind. And probably like a lot of people went back home to live with my folks with this piece of paper saying you spent X amount of, you know, pounds on this university degree. What do you want to do with it? And I didn't have a clue. And my dad basically said, well, you need to be getting out of the house. So come up to the rugby club I coach at. And there's a community radio station that, that is, we've got the changing rooms and a community radio station in the middle, go in there, make the cups of tea, meet people. And I went in and it was the first time I'd seen a studio. It was the first time I'd seen someone speak into a mic and knew it was being heard elsewhere. And I just went a bit like we're wrestling. Oh, oh, I think I could do this. I, I, I've seen a way in. And from there, I was very fortunate to get some work experience at my local BBC station. And that was my way in. And my way in was as a sports commentator. That's my background. Hmm. Because I'd heard Jim Ross commentate. And I wanted to do that for sport. And I've always said he's my biggest idol. So that was my way in. It was a very, some people plan and they know they're going to do it and they structure themselves towards it. Mine was just pure, pure luck. Hmm. I mean, I feel like that's not really like a, a uh, exclusion to like what we see in, in a lot of instances with people and in their journeys into journalism. I feel like there's so many people, especially now a days that kind of, either luck into it or fall into it in a way, you know, you know, that is really interesting because I think it, obviously you want to have like the background of like, you know, of like a, some journalism education, you know, especially around like ethics and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think that of course that's vitally important, but at the same time, like, I think sort of like the demystification of, the journalism degree and and that sort of thing is is a, a welcome thing. Obviously, that doesn't exclude people from like learning good practices. <laughs> yeah. But you know, more and more, I think that's that's something that's really intriguing to me is like kind of removing some of the gatekeeping around like some of the voices that can be heard uh, in in this space. I completely agree. I, I mean, because I came to it slightly higgledy piggledy and back to front. And I ended up doing a journalism degree while I was working in journalism, just so I had that. So I did a second degree. Mm. And one thing I noticed was was folks who maybe didn't have that real world experience, they were quite reluctant to do some of the basic things of journalism. So they wouldn't pick up a phone to call someone to ask for a quote or a story or to arrange something. They were quite timid in in that respect. Um, and I I feel what you need to be a journalist obviously you need the legal training which you can learn but but really you need to be interested in people you need to be interested in stories and you have to want to be able to communicate and although a course can enhance and tell you give you the tools for how to do that you'll drive to that's quite inherent in you you either want to do that or you don't and i think you're right that there's this gatekeeping which has this mythical thing 
you can only be a journalist if you go to this school at this time and this degree and work at this place. Actually, it's not like that. And it wasn't for me. I learned all my journalism experience on the job and then went and got the qualification just to make sure what I'd learned was right. <laughs> and honestly, I commend you for that. You know, like I, I think I, my, because it's interesting because like I, I, I speak to that sort of like demystification of it because like that's also my background in it. You know, like I didn't finish my journalism degree before getting into this. You know, I ended, I ended up like getting kicked out of college. So like, <laughs> I won't ask. I won't ask. Oh, it, it was it was depression. It was okay. <laughs> it was just mental health stuff. Okay. Don't don't just sleep through your classes because you feel like you can't get out of bed or at least like seek help. That's that's the message for me there. Um, but like, you know, it's it's interesting to see like how those paths have opened up though. And and especially like you talk about like going back and like making sure that what you learned is right through a degree program, like that is also a very, very valid way. You know, I've I've thought about doing that myself, like trying to finish my my thing in that way, but also like it's not a necessary thing per se, as long as you like understand the tenets of the job. I, I would agree. My, and mine was that's that gatekeeping you spoke about. I did mine out of pure frustration that I was doing the job five days a week and I was looking, but I was freelance for folks who don't know what freelance means. It means you pick up jobs here and there, but you've not got a set contract. And every time I was trying to get a contracted job, it kept saying, have you got a recognized journalism qualification? And I, I couldn't say yes. And that was a frustration that I knew if they sat me in their newsroom, I could do the job right there and then because I had been doing it, but I couldn't get through that door. So I had to go back and do that. That was a different time. That was probably 2011, 2012. So I'm not sure it applies necessarily now, but that was certainly my experience. I think it depends on the field of journalism that you're going into. Yeah. Like, like I think if you're going into like hard news, like, you know, political stuff, like you're going to apply at cnn or something you know like you pro they're probably still going to have that on on you know the job qualification sort of thing but like in in other spaces you know because like i i started out in games journalism before i switched over to to sports and wrestling and stuff and game there's a lot of similarities between games journalism and and sports journalism nowadays in terms of like you know avenues of entry and kind of breaking down those barriers of of entry as well and you know i i think that for the most part um the industry is is better off for it because of the diversity of voices that it presents obviously there's still some people that we don't necessarily need in this space but <laughs> that's okay those people get weeded out <laughs> yeah. and you're right and, and i always say to people luck has paid such a huge role in in what i've got to do so I was lucky because I, yes, I went and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I did drive myself to do another degree, <clears throat> excuse me. But what I also had the fortune of was I lived at home so I could live rent free at home. I had a really good university that was 20 miles away from where I was working. So mm. I could do one, then go to the other. I had understanding lecturers. I, I had all these things. And I, I often think because I am proud of what I've achieved, but I think, but for the grace of God, you know, there there are many, many more talented people out there than me who just didn't have things line up in the way I've done. So I always try to say that to people that it that you need a lot to go right. Yes, you have to be driven. Yes, you you need to have some degree of ambition, but you also don't discount the fact there's lots of people with all those skills who just quite haven't had the breaks 
or haven't had the breaks yet because there's no age limit on when you get into this. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like I <laughs> going to date myself a bit. Like I didn't start covering this stuff until 2018, you know, yeah. like that was, that was like my first, first wrestling story I wrote was in 2018 and like, I'm about to turn 38. So like, <laughs> like I had a very like late entry point into this as a career, um, which I think just goes to show, like, like you said, you can start this at any time. You can crank up, like you want to, you have a great, great podcast idea. You have something that you genuinely want to do in like coverage of stuff like that. You want to start a blog, like you can do that at any point. Yeah. And particularly now as well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give any secrets away. I, during the <laughs> pandemic, when we couldn't go into the studio, I rigged out my back bedroom with, you know, all the kit to, to, to do recordings. And now you think, well, why would I do it anywhere else? Now, this makes my day job easier. But if for whatever reason I were to leave my day job, well, I've got all the stuff I need to keep doing it in a form, you know, that if I wanted to. And I've got YouTube and I've got Twitter or X as it is now. There's TikTok. There's all these all these forums to do journalism. When I was starting in 2011, 2012, you, you literally couldn't unless you were very clever and ahead of the curve, you would never have been able to do this. So there's never been a better time to try and make it if you want to. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to go back a little bit though, because like you mentioned, like, you know, kind of the tenets of like, like characteristics of journalists that the characteristics that you need, like that sort of thing. One of the ones that I always point to is like curiosity in a way. You know, the the curiosity to kind of dig into stories and subjects, wanting to learn more about people and more about their stories and stuff like that. Um, and knowing that journalism wasn't necessarily a thing that you had looked to get into from an early age or, or from a formative age. Like, did you always have like kind of a, the sense of like curiosity that kind of comes with that with that job or like? How would was that something that you had to like kind of work to cultivate for yourself? Do you know what I think it is? I've I've always been curious about the world around me. I I love to read. I love to travel when I can. Um, I read nonfiction almost exclusively. I'm really curious about the world. People may not believe it, but this is something that I think is true for a lot of people in journalism. I'm quite shy. I, I really don't. If you put me in a party, and you say Jack. Go in, have a lovely time. There's loads of interesting people there. Just have a chat with them. I'd be up against a wall. I, I'm a complete wallflower. It's not my thing. If you were to give me a microphone and say, Jack, there's loads of any interesting people in there. Go in and have a great time. I talk to each and every one of them. It brings me out of my shell. And I think what I found was that journalism gave you permission and almost gave you this power to to be curious and to break the ice with people and start having conversations. And so all the things I've been reading about and, you know, oh, oh, I wonder why this works. I wonder why that works. I wonder why this is that case, but I'm too shy. And also who the heck am I to ask anyone that journalism says, right now it's your job. Well, now you're empowered to go and do that. And that was what I think it was for me that I suddenly realized that there was a profession that allowed that curiosity to come out in a way that was quite protected. It wasn't Jack Murley, the man, putting himself out there, Jack Murley, the journalist, doing that. And mm -hmm. and I think that's where it came from. And I remember reading about Johnny Carson, the, the legendary U.S. TV host, and they people would say about Johnny Carson, 
on screen he was everyone's friend when the cameras went off he was quite shy and reserved and the the format gave him permission to be that way and i think that's certainly true for me and i think it's true for a lot of people in this industry yeah i mean i'm right there with you like i i think you know i haven't been shy about talking about my like shyness or like social anxiety on this show at times and and you know i think that that is a common trait i feel like amongst yeah. other journalists in a way it's, it's almost like it's like you you develop a switch you develop this 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 thing that you can just turn on in the right moment but outside of that like it can be a bit hard especially whenever you start through your work you develop a reputation for being able to be like that person like you know on the spot like you know inquisitive engaging all that sort of thing and then like people meet you in real life and it's just like ah i don't even i don't know how to small talk with you i don't know <laughs> my friends notice it as well i mean i i think you don't you don't stay static do you so i think i've become more confident thanks to the job but i've definitely had moments where i've been meeting someone in you know day-to-day -day life or something i'm with a friend and they'll just out the corner of their mouth go you're interviewing them. You're not talking to them. You're interviewing them because I I get into that mode, and you have to go. Oh yeah, okay. I can I can turn the switch back a little bit. I'm I'm not on. No one's going to hear this. It's valuable that you have people around you that are willing to like like kind of call you out a little bit in those moments. Like I say, knocking the edges off me. That's what that's yeah. what I've kept my friends around me for. That's what I like my friends to do. <laughs> What's like the one edge that you're like most thankful was knocked off by your friends? Oh, I, 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 I just, I, honestly, I think I was a bit strange. I just, I was, I was this guy with, you know, his little Filofax and I, I had a little mobile phone, which also had a transistor radio in it. And I would sit outside listening to this trans. And I think they just went, he's going to get eaten alive in the real world. If he's like that, we just have to smarten him up a little bit to what life is like. So I, I, I can't put it more like they, they just made me a bit less strange and a bit more sociable. <laughs> I mean, what else are friends for, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. I love it. Okay, so I still want to talk about where like this this journalism career that that is kind of burgeoning meets up with pro wrestling at some point. But you mentioned that you went to university for like history and politics. Mm. What was it about those subjects that made you want to like? go to university for them like i'm I'm just i'm curious i mean there, there's a really simple answer which is I, i've got a younger brother and an elder sister and they both have skills my my older sister is a doctor my younger brother manages incredibly complicated projects for for companies i've never really had skills like they can do maths and they can do science i can talk a bit there's not much of a market for that <laughs> And so when you can talk a bit and you've got a bit of knowledge about everything, you sort of just say, well, I'll go to university and I'll do what I enjoy. And I enjoyed history. I really like modern history. I like modern American political history. So when my first semester at university was all about the Vikings, oh, I hated it. I wanted to wanted to go home then and there. And I've always loved American politics. Um, that was, I, as I was watching wrestling, I also discovered the West Wing, and that was my insight into American politics. And I was very idealistic. And I thought, well, if I get this degree, I don't know what I want to do, but maybe I'll go off and I'll be Josh Lyman and I'll work in the White House, something like that. And then that obviously wasn't the reality. But because I was interested in those two things, I thought at least I'll 
get a degree, I'll get a qualification, and I will go to the lectures because I will be interested in those things. <laughs> Did, like, having those two, like, kind of discoveries, like, kind of coincide, like, you talk about wrestling and the West Wing as, like, an, as a, the example there, like, was that something that made it easier for kind of you to, like, dissect the politics of pro wrestling in a way, especially... WWE, you know, because I think over in the States, like WWE, like obviously has a reputation for like, you know, being very, very like, you know, I think super patriotic at the same time as being super problematic about some of that stuff, as well as other things too. Like, I'm just curious, like if that, op like if having that as like a line of study kind of opened your eyes to different aspects of, of what you saw in pro wrestling. I'd love to say I was switched on enough to say it did. I'd love to say I was that astute. I'm clearly not as astute as you you are because I I need a little while to be to be turned on to the fact that wrestling wasn't real. I, that mm. took quite oh, it took me real. some time too. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't looking at it like that. So I, I I think and maybe this is true for everyone. You know, everyone has their two wrestling awakenings. They discover wrestling, and then they discover all the backstage stuff that we really shouldn't like and we really shouldn't be interested in, but we really really are. Um. I don't think the two link together, um, but I, 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 maybe it was a love of Americana. I'm not quite sure, but there was just, I tell you what it did do. It confused the heck out of my parents because I would say <laughs> I'm staying up to watch the West Wing and they go the wrestling. No, the West Wing or vice versa. They, it was like one of those bad comedy who's on first sketches. And, mm -hmm. and it was, they'd sort of poke around the corner. They go, right, there seems to be a man in a suit in an office. That must be the political one he's watching today. So, yeah. <laughs> Mark Adams from uh, from Progress and TNT Extreme recently kind of turned me on to this old uh, British comedy so show called Chuckle Vision, and that <laughs> just from your reaction, I can understand like what crime has Mark done to me. Um, <laughs> but... All the things I thought we'd be talking about here, Brian. I never, I didn't think, I didn't think Paul and Barry Chuckle would be the ones that would come up. But like that just seems like a chuckle vision gag now, as someone who's watched a few episodes of that show now, because Mark like turned me on to it in a, like in a very weird way. So like I don't know, like that just it just screams that to me. <laughs> well, I, I I can I can I can sort of see it to be honest. I'm a little taken aback that <laughs> that you made that analogy. But fair play to Mark Adams for introducing you to a staple of British culture because. Chuckle Vision was one of the main things that kids would watch growing up. Um, maybe for another podcast, another day, we can talk about some of the other things that are cult <laughs> British TV viewing as yes. people of our generation. I believe he described it to me as this, the most British thing to ever exist. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back to to uh, progressing because obviously, at some point in your like journalism career you start to kind of bring this love of pro wrestling into your coverage. Like you start to kind of bridge the, the gap between these two things. Like what was the kind of spark sparking off point for, for that happening? Do you know, I, I think a lot of it was as my career developed without giving you the long and short, I began to get more freedom because people realized he's not rubbish at what he does. And I, I would move around to different places in the UK and the moment it really started happening was I went to um, the Channel Islands, which is a different part of the UK, not technically in the UK, but you don't know the ins and outs of the politics, and it's far too complicated to explain. But basically, I was in charge of their sports coverage on the telly, on the radio, digital, wherever it was. And I just had a boss who trusted me. 
and I said to him, look, professional wrestling is is, is scripted entertainment. They're, the winners are known, the losers are known. There's an outline of the match, but it is incredibly athletic. And more importantly, um, there, there is an audience for it that is really, really big. And even more importantly, here in Jersey, where I'm working, we happen to have a really good professional wrestler. He's a guy called Benjamin Carter, who you will know as Nathan Fraser in NXT. He was one of ours, and he was on a soccer scholarship to the United States. And I said, let's get him on. Let's let's talk about professional wrestling with this fella. And he came on, and he was great, and they liked it. And I said, look, we, we've also got here in the Channel Islands our own, our own federation. And so we got in one of the, the people from the federation, a guy called Dark Angel. So we got him in. So we began, because I had the editorial freedom to do it, we began drip feeding it in. And that was sort of in, in the sports show I was doing. And it was while I was there, I launched the LGBT sport podcast. And I really had freedom over that because that was entirely my baby. I came up with the idea. I invented it. I pitched it. And I said to them, look, it's going to be hard enough getting LGBTQ plus, plus folks on every week to speak in sport. So let's let's keep it as wide as we can, our definition. But more importantly than that, why wouldn't we speak to wrestlers? They're athletic. They're driven. All of that type of thing. And my bosses went, yeah, you, you know what you're doing. Get them on. So we just I guess we just started that precedent early that our audience was smart enough to understand that wrestling wasn't sport, but also sophisticated enough to know we weren't trying to sell it to them as that. We weren't saying, oh, my goodness, it's legitimate convert competition. And isn't it disgusting? The referee didn't see a chair shot and we need an investigation into the referees. It was like, you know what it is. We know what it is, but it's still interesting. These are still really interesting people. So why don't you listen to us chat with them? And folks just bought into it and it just grew from there. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in to LGBT in the ring. We're just going to take a quick break here to let you know uh, ways that you can support the show. And say thank you to some very rad people that help make this show uh, as amazing as it is. Um, first off, if you would like to support the show, we are on Patreon now. Patreon.com slash LGBT ring pod. Multiple tiers there for everyone that feels so moved to support this show. We've got numerous uh, patron benefits over there, uh, including bonus shows that are going to be coming out on a monthly uh, roundtable of those sort of things. So uh, definitely go over and check us out. Uh, again, patreon.com slash LGBT ring pod. Every single dollar that is... Uh, pledge there to support the show is very very humbling and we thank you we also have a, a merch store over on brainbuster tees go to brainbustertees.com and search lgbt in the ring uh you got t-shirts tank tops all kinds of good stuff and you know always looking at some new things as well but uh, definitely check us out on brainbuster tees there as well you can follow the show on social media as well we're everywhere um, that we have accounts. We're at LGBT RingPod. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, co-host, <laughs> Mastodon, whatever. We're there. Uh, so follow the show there. You can follow me at WonderboyOTM on uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. We also want to give a huge thank you to Sarah and the Safe Word for the show's theme, uh, Formula 666, from the album Red Hot and Holy. 
You can find them on Twitter at STSWBand, or you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp. Another great way to support the show uh, is over at independentwrestling.tv. Check out IWTV for the best in current and classic independent pro wrestling, including live events from top independent promotions worldwide. You can use our code LGBTRingPod or visit uh, the URL, tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT. And uh, whenever you, uh, as long as you use that code to open your account and keep that active, we get a kickback from IWTV. So your subscription to watch all the great wrestling that we talk about on this show uh, goes to support the show as well. Thumbs up there. Of course, if you want to read more of my pro wrestling writing, you can check out outsports.com. And if you are into video games, I also co-host a video game news uh, Twitch stream every Monday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It's called the Mr. Video Game Super Show. Um, I co-host that with uh, two dear friends and Twitch streamers, uh, Slacker Kite and Lady Merwin. Um, just run through the, the week's gaming news or we throw on a game and play and just have fun and be dumb. It's, it's great. But uh, you can check that out every Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific over at twitch.tv slash Entertainment. Sun like the star. With that said, let's get back to the show. When do you think... Um the BBC LGBT sport podcast kind of like found its footing, so to speak. Like, is there a certain episode or a certain time period that you can point to where you felt like, okay, this is, this is clicking. I can remember the first few weeks bricking it, being absolutely petrified going, is anyone going to listen? Is there any point? Can, can we sustain it? Cause as you know, the easiest thing in the world to do is to launch a podcast. The hardest thing is to sustain a podcast. Yes. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Booking <laughs> guests, editing, finding people, getting the word out. From a standing start in a crowded market, it's near on impossible. And when you're doing it for something which you've always been told, well, you can't do that because there are no gay people in sport, but no one's going to listen to that. It becomes even more daunting. The moment I knew that people were listening was we um we got on the the former U.S. soccer coach, Jill Ellis, fairly early on, multiple-time World Cup winning coach. The fact that she did it, then legitimized it for us to get on a woman called Claire Balding, who probably many of your listeners won't know, but she's a really big sports presenter in the UK. And once we got her, that was like a safety net because you could start saying to other people, oh, but Claire's done it. She's And, and everyone knows Claire Balding here in the UK. So they go, oh, okay, well, everyone, if Claire's done it, he's not going to mess me around. She's savvy. She wouldn't have gone on. And that was the bit minute it sort of, began to click and you go, oh, okay, I can breathe a bit because people are wanting to come on. And then I guess the third evolution of it was when people started messaging me who I didn't know saying, you don't know me, but I listen and I'd be grateful if you would maybe let me tell my story. So we started having Olympic swimmers and um, world-class athletes who I had never met start following me on Instagram. And then they send a message and you begin to develop those relationships. So that that was sort of the moment you go, all right, this this is cooking with gas. And then you find yourself doing things like standing outside Wembley Stadium on FA Cup final day, which is like the Super Bowl day here in the UK. And they're lighting it up in the pride colors because you've asked them to do it. And you go, oh, mm-hmm. that's cool. 
that's we never thought that would happen and it's those moments you pinch yourself and you go yeah we're lucky this this is lucky this is a good job to have and we've made something happen and i don't luck plays so much in what i do and what i've done but i do let myself have those moments where that happens where i go mm-hmm. yeah that 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 was special <laughs> young gay me would be pretty impressed with that how did how did that come about like how how were you able to like get them to to light up the stadium we asked them very cheekily thinking they would say no and i have to say this is myself and I, like i said i don't do any of this alone now, now it's got to a certain stage i've got a lot of buy-in from other people and um a, a man called mark woodward who's a football producer uh, creative lead at bbc sport i said i wonder he said yeah i wonder as well and he asked them and they said okay yeah we'll give you <laughs> they gave us five minutes and they said it's lit up now we're going to turn off all the music inside so you can do your piece to camera we're telling you, you've got five minutes, so we don't care if this doesn't work for you. If at the end of five minutes, that music's going back on and that's coming <laughs> off the stadium. I've never felt, because I had to, I had to. it was me, I did an introduction, I lined up some LGBT football fans, I had to go down the lines, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? All the time I'm thinking, don't swear, don't ask, you know, don't, uh, if any of them ask, we can start again, we're screwed. Because they've got, you know, the Coldstream Guards, who are a regiment of, of the royal family's band in there, waiting to play the hymn, Abide With Me to practice and some Egypt's outside mucking up his lines and and they're not going to wait. So <laughs> it, it was just luck. It was, and what made that special was it happened to be my birthday as well. So I was oh. like, ah, nice way to turn 35. There you go. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Like I, I love, I love moments like that. Like not just because of like what it represents, obviously visually, you know, having the stadium lit up that way, having uh, you know LGBTQ fans there to talk about like what that means to them and that sort of thing. But also like there is like some joy in like the anxiety at times, right? Like there's some joy in like those moments. Are you sure moments. about that? <laughs> you, look, I, I have, I've been told that I am guilty of finding silver linings where I have to like use a microscope. Okay? So where, where I think you're right is it matter? It shows it matter. If if I'd sort of yes. gone there and gone, oh, okay, yeah, it's only Wembley. I can muck this up a few times. No, it 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 made you realize this is a big time deal, and the reason you've got butterflies in your stomach is this isn't your everyday moment. So it it makes you be sharper, and it makes you be more controlled as a journalist and as a presenter, and it makes you think, right, some deep breath, and off we go. And it's a weird dichotomy because on the one hand, you are so hyper aware this is unusual, but for the people watching, you want to project that calm and that this is just another day at the office and it's everything, you know, it isn't this, you've got to bring them with you. Um, It's quite a hard needle to thread, as you know. Yes, yes, it definitely can be. (laughs) No, but still like, I don't know, like, I feel like maybe that's just like, Maybe the the better way of phrasing that is like, like feeling that pressure and like feeling you rise to it, and the gratification that comes with it, right? Like I think that's that's more so what I mean rather than just the silver lining of anxiety. You know, I think you're right, and and I think you look back and you go, you know, I I will always look back and go, maybe I'd have done that a little bit different. Maybe I'd have done that a little bit. But you, when you do it well as well, you know, like you'll know when you finish an interview with someone great and you get a good you know, we would call it a good line or you just have a nice chat or you just go, mm, that's yeah. We all know in journalism when you've, when you've done it well. And that anxiety is sometimes the, the price you pay for knowing you're going to do it well. Yeah. Very true. 
God, we're just, yeah, we're just vibing on the same wavelength. <laughs> we're just two big bundles of anxiety on different sides of the Atlantic, just trying to make our way in this industry. That's all it is. Maybe that's why we connected so well. <laughs> it, it could well be. I, I mean, I think that's the thing. Everyone looks and and not so much at me, but you, everyone will have people they watch on the telly and they'll go, oh, they make it look so easy. If if it is an act, it is an act. Like you know, I've done pieces to cam. The hardest thing I find on camera when I do bits for telly is walking in, looking at the camera, saying my bit, and walking out. That shouldn't be hard, but you'd be amazed how hard it is to walk like you're a human being when there's a camera on you. You you develop limps. Your arms go stiff. You start giving the camera side. It's it's weird. It's a strange <laughs> sensation. I know. Obviously, I haven't had too many experiences in in that realm there, but I can definitely see how like you sort of like become aware of your body in those yeah. instances, and it's just like, oh, what do I do with my fingers? I never thought about what to do with like my hands, but now I have to think about what do I do with my hands. Yeah, and you have to think about you know what your face does naturally when you know. I I think my face is pretty normal naturally when it's on camera. I have to remind myself you have to smile. Even if you yeah. don't think you're smiling, smile because otherwise you look like a right moody so and so, and so it's 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 all that type of stuff. No, no, I, it's all it's all valuable lessons that that I think are are learned and you continue to manage and and grow in all those areas and that sort of thing. But yes, it is definitely a a skill to be learned yeah. there. Um, so obviously, like in the in the what the, the podcast has been running for like what five years at this point five six years yeah this is this is our sixth year we're going into yeah. now so we started in 2018 the autumn okay and obviously you've had a, a ton of like outstanding guests on the show there like from from the pro wrestling space specifically are there any episodes that stand out as like personally significant Do you know i was thinking about this earlier and and the relationship, and I wouldn't claim we have a relationship with Anthony Bowens, but he's been on twice. And the first time he came on was when he was, I think, the, the five-tool player. And he was in Impact Wrestling. And he was, uh, AEW didn't even exist. It wasn't a thing. And he was talking about, you know, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do that. And then the second time he'd come on, he just main-evented a Dynamite against Sting and Darby Allen. And you go, well, hasn't your world changed in the, you know, however many years since we last spoke? And I love that. So that was a really cool moment. Um, Effie, just, you know, what a superstar. Getting to, to have a conversation with someone with a mind like that. Um, Aubrey Ed Edwards, incredibly cool. Just to get to talk to, to someone like that who wears so many hats in AEW. And then really just the UK scene, you know, because when I was growing up, not only did I think I was the only gay man certainly in cornwall probably in the whole south of england i did not think there was anyone else like me i thought i was like a like an albino horse or something that technically could exist but it was just a fluke that i happened to be and certainly there'd be no one like me who liked wrestling so when you start speaking to brad slayer or you know priscilla or adam bolt or zz or people like that you're like oh there's blinking loads of us that's so cool those are always great interviews mm. How important was it for you, like, now that you had this position where you could bring on, you know, queer people from the community, from the pro wrestling scene there, looking back on, like, your own fandom, like, growing up, you know, watching WWE where, you know, queer people, if they were on the TV, were a punchline. And, 
you know, kind of historically how like our community has been treated by like WWE and kind of the wider mainstream pro wrestling scene for the most part, like how important was it for you to, to feature people from our community, authentic people from our community on the show? And how did that factor into like, like the relationship between your own queerness and pro wrestling growing up? So I, I think the first thing is I'm incredibly selfish, which means when I get these people on, it's because I want to talk pro wrestling with them. That mm -hmm. That's really, I want to geek down and talk about pro wrestling. <laughs> so while I would love to say I'm going to bring him on and her on and them on, and we're going to elevate everyone. It's a great, it's not, I just love nattering with interesting people. And I love talking professional wrestling. That said, I do feel that there's a responsibility to elevate those voices because many of them, although I'm quite a lot older than some of them, many of them will have had the same experiences of watching you know, your Billy and Chucks or whatever it may be that didn't cover professional wrestling in glory. And I know how important it is for them to hear those stories. And I remember hearing we we did Brad Slayer's story and we didn't do it first, but he'd been on a podcast that Adam Bolt had heard. And so I I knew that there was that importance that if you could feature those stories, you would help people you never even knew about. So I, I think that's important. In terms of my own identity, I never thought growing up I would be able to sit with someone else who was LGBTQ plus and talk sport. That's why I started the podcast. I never thought that that would exist. And then if you condense that down to talking to someone who likes wrestling and and is as geeky as I am, you know, I know this about NXT or I know this about that pay-per-view and isn't that a great finisher and why haven't they booked this person? And where their identity doesn't define that conversation, but you are both aware in a world where you are too often not seen or you feel alone, that you're together in that moment. That for me is just beautiful. It's it's just so lovely. And it's not just on the podcast. You know, I, I was lucky enough. I think we've spoken about before to go to AEW All In at Wembley. Mm -hmm. And I went with two mates, one straight, one gay on either side of me just there loving wrestling. And I knew that up in one of the sky boxes was, was Brad Slayer with the WAW contingent and some of the other people from WAW, some gay, some not, who cares, all there loving wrestling. And it just filled me with joy. So to get to speak to people about wrestling anytime is a joy, knowing we've got that thing that moves our relationship beyond just what's happening in the ring is just the cherry on top. Mm. Now, obviously you know, we've seen a, a big like kind of resurgence, like, like a comeback of like the British indie scene there as like, you know, pandemic stuff has subsided a bit. And with that, we've seen just, you know, obviously an explosion of queer talents in, in the progressing scene there as well. You know, like what role do you feel like your show and your work represents in terms of like not necessarily like the wider like return of the of the indie scene over there but more so like the the changing of the indie scene like what do you want what place do you want it to have in that conversation well firstly i'm going to throw some love back your way because i think any work i've done is is far trumped by what you do week in week out on this show so i'm just going to say that i think for me it's it's just giving 
that space for wrestlers to to get to talk about themselves like whether you're from the community or not it's hard it's hard if you're a wrestler to get your voice out there it's hard to get yourself known it's hard to make your presence be something that other promoters are aware of it's hard to get people to come to your show so i don't consciously sit there and go i i I want to influence this if i do x y and z that will happen exponentially in the british scene but i am aware that giving wrestlers a space is something that maybe isn't done enough in the mainstream media in the uk let alone for lgbtq plus folks and i think the fact that that people know there's a space where they can talk and one of the successes of the podcast is that people people don't get pigeonholed on it if if i can sort of toot our own trumpet a little bit i think people are sometimes scared to tell their stories if they're lgbtq plus in sport or in wrestling because they don't want to be you know i'm the gay wrestler i'm the gay footballer i'm whatever they know if they come on my show as they do with yours that actually they're a wrestler first and foremost, or they're a valet, or they're a manager, or they're a commentator, because we've had Dave Bradshaw, the brilliant British commentator, on. They know that that will be where the focus is. So I, I guess maybe that's what I'm proudest of, the legacy, where it's where it's, we can give a space for wrestlers who happen to be from the community, a place to be their authentic self. Whether that's driven any growth in the UK scene, I, I couldn't tell you. I'd love to think it, it had. I know I've been really proud of my association with WAW wrestling and the work they've done, but um, I, I think I'd be lying if I claimed to be uh, the savior of the great resurgence <laughs> of the British scene. It's all down to Jack Murley's back bedroom podcast. That's where it's yes. happened. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the work that we do that makes that makes the wrestling machine work, right? We're the real heroes, Brian. Come exactly. on. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. God. God, I feel icky just even saying that in jest. Um, (laughs) As a Brit, I have no shame with that. My sense of irony is such, I'm just going to put it out there. It's all down (laughs) to me, everyone, okay? You can send your royalty checks to me, Jack Murley. Thank you very much. There you go. Yeah, I'll just be a walking ball of cringe over here while you you do that. (laughs) No. But you bring up WAW, and that was like where I wanted to kind of talk about next because, you know, obviously there are – you talk about like not necessarily – like you talk about like the expansion of, of the independent scene over there, right? Part of that in terms of, you know, the LGBTQ focus is that we are seeing a lot more pride shows now from, from places. Um, and WAW is one of those places they've been, they, for two years in a row now they've done a pride show and you have been a part of that as a commentator. Um, obviously breaking back in those, those uh, play-by-play chops that you, that you had in your, in the beginnings of your career now, as I understand it. So like, what was that, how did that opportunity come to you? And what was that like to kind of step into the pro wrestling commentating space, knowing like your admiration for for people like JR? It's the greatest thrill of my entire broadcasting life. If I'm completely honest, I've been very fortunate to do a lot of things. I had the pleasure of meeting Jim Ross on a UK tour. And it's one of my most treasured photographs is me with JR And I got to tell him, you're the reason I'm a broadcaster. And I hadn't done any wrestling at that point. Wouldn't do for many years. So it was Brad Slayer who asked me if I wanted to be involved. And I jumped at the opportunity. And I think he was thinking maybe I'd be a a referee or maybe I'd be, you know, on the outside or something like that. But it was pretty soon I said I'd, I'd, I'd really love to have a crack at commentary. I'd really love to. 
And the first year I was on color commentary and it was the best experience of my life. Just, I can't, I cannot tell you what a buzz it was to be sat behind a monitor with the headsets on and seeing this amazing queer talent and allies perform in a ring. And afterwards we all got in the ring and everyone was celebrating. And I just knew I had to do it again. If I was ever fortunate enough to be asked. And then the next year span round and they asked me to come back and do to play by play lead comms. And I, I've got to be honest, I've been very fortunate. I've I've broadcast live around the world for the BBC. That show, the work I did on that show is amongst what I'm most proud of. If it's not number one, it's one A because I was living my dream. That was my dream. My dream was to sit and call professional wrestling and to invest myself in it and to tell their stories and to elevate what I was seeing. And afterwards, I was fortunate enough that that some of the talent made the effort to come to me and say, you did a really good job. And that for me was priceless, that I didn't muck it up for them, that I enhanced what they were doing. You could look, it's a podcast, but you can see I'm smiling from ear to ear just talking about it. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. No, like you obviously like seeing face to face right now, just beaming in the same way that if you go back and watch the WWE, WAW pride show from this past year, I think it like obviously that, that opening shot with you and your commentary partner, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, Rip Parker, excellent Rip, commentator. Yes. yes. Um, the two of you that, that, that two shot of y'all at the very beginning, just the smile on your face, the like, just there's like a sunbeam just emitting from your body. <laughs> and that and, like, wasn't fake. No, it's just like you can you can see it written all over you, like how how important and how like like it almost feels like you're like back in, as a as a child, like watching this in a way. You, you, no, not in a way. In, you're absolutely right, because I've never been embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. And I've never been embarrassed to say Jim Ross was my guy of, of many, many talented people. Jim Ross was the one that got me in. And I knew that watching these amazingly talented performers, if I sat there and took an, A, it wouldn't be me anyway. That's not who I am. But if I sat there and took an ironic or, oh, you know, we all know, tongue in cheek, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I would be doing them a disservice. This this was their, it wasn't Jack Murley's night. This was their night. So I prepared for a month in advance. I had notes, I had commentary. I knew the finishes. I knew the stories. and And for me, and you were very kind. It was nominated for one of the QWI awards for match of the year, um, Adam Bolt against Mitchell Starr. That for me was just such pure storytelling that I lost myself in it. I wasn't Jack Murley. I've interviewed Mitchell Starr. I've interviewed Adam Bolt. I know them as individuals. I was all in on what they were doing and I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> I listened to it back at the end. And when Adam Bolt cheats to win, I am ripping him a new one. I, I hope you're <laughs> proud of yourself, Adam Bolt. You've disgraced the title. And I felt every minute of it. And then Mitchell Starr gave a very poignant speech at the end where he said, well, you're a bit of a toe rag in the ring, who you are. Is and then at the end, I was feeling that as well and going back the other way because it was and it is real to me. I, if you love it, I just can't explain it, but I just love it so much that... It was just a joy. It just and and I really hope they do a third one. And if they do, I hope I'm lucky enough to be asked back and the other promotions ask me as well, because 
I feel so alive doing it. I can't even tell you. It definitely comes across in, in the presentation for sure. And I think that's, I think it's one of the most endearing aspects of like, you know, people that kind of let themselves get lost in those moments is because it's like, you're just letting yourself be along for the ride at that instance. And and it brings out this, these real statements, these real emotions out of you. It's the same way that like, you know, a, a fan would interact with that sort of thing. You know, and wouldn't you want that if you're a performer? Like you yeah. want to, you want to take everyone on that ride. You don't want to go. Well, I've got her in the back row and him in the middle row, and I can see the barman's looking around as intrigued. But I'm looking at the commentary table, and they're rolling their eyes and they're looking a bit bored. If the rest, the way I see it, my job is if something is, is to enhance the story the wrestlers are telling. Now, if the wrestlers are having an off day, I can still enhance the stories they're telling. If the wrestlers are having a great day like everyone had on that pride show. If they're having a great day, I don't need to do any work. I just need to feel what they're giving me. You develop a repartee with your partner fairly quickly. You feed off each other and you just go with it. it it's like music. It's like, I can't dance, but I imagine for people who can dance and when, you know, Gloria Estefan says the rhythm just gets you and people just dance and it's great. That's how commentary feels to me. It feels like I'm just got the rhythm, that I'm just dancing, that I'm just enjoying everything it has to offer. Hmm. What was the like biggest difference or challenge between like, you know, commentating pro wrestling versus like, you know, calling calling a football match or something like that? Do you know that's such an interesting thing that I've thought of a lot. I don't think they're that different because hmm. because the way I see commentating on football my job isn't to tell you what the third choice left back on the bench had for breakfast and how that affects whatever. My job is to, is to identify a story. That's the way you hook people into what's the story. If I'm sitting in the car or if I'm in the kitchen and I've got the kids asking for their food or the phone's going and I want, uh, there's something on the radio. I'm not really sure what it is. I need to get your attention with what the story is. And so you frame it very simply you know, this person's top, this person's bottom. If they win, they win the title. If they lose, they're relegated. This striker, if he gets another goal, he's broken a record. It's it, it's anchoring your commentary around those points that will make someone go, oh, that's interesting. That's okay. I didn't know that. And that's what I think wrestling is. Uh, there's absolutely a market for broadcasters who know the name and history of every hold and the origins and every, you know, full stop and capital letter of a feud going back the whole time. That's great. But that's not my style. My style is, what's the emotion? Who's good and who's bad? Why, why are they fighting? Now, why is that interesting? And that was very much a carryover from my football commentary style, which was in and of itself a carry-on from listening to JR commentate. So I guess you're saying, how does one affect the other? Well, I've always been doing a version of Jim Ross, not consciously. I'm not saying, <laughs> good God almighty, he's broken the net in half. But that was the person I'd taken on. So every commentary I've done to some extent has been a wrestling commentary. <laughs> Obviously like football or soccer, as we know it in the States um, has grown in profile over the, in, in the U S over the last like decade and a half for sure. But do you think more Americans would be in the soccer if you did like call it as if, Oh <laughs> my God, he's broken the net in half. <laughs> yes, I, think you would. I don't know what's wrong with your commentators on soccer in, in the States that, they tend to be quite subdued when things happen. Whereas us in Europe, we tend to get very over the top when things happen. And mm -hmm. it's almost like 
the further you come across the Atlantic, you hit the UK and our excitement is maybe a six out of a 10. In the US, you seem to be a four out of 10. By the time you reach Italy, it's 10 out of 10. I mean, they're just the mics modulating, they're screaming, they're shouting. You cannot understand what's being said, even if you do speak Italian. So I think maybe all the commentators need to have a little discussion and say, let's get ourselves to a point where we're all at a seven and then everyone will be happier. I could I could agree with that for sure. You know, most of my like soccer watching experience has been watching um, the uh, Liga MX in, in Mexico. And yes. you want to talk about somebody who goes 10 out of 10. Oh, love Don't it. They just here's, here's where I did because I didn't just commentate on soccer. I've been fortunate enough to do a load of sports. Rugby is the one where actually mm. the inner JR comes out because for folks who don't know rugby, <laughs> think of your American football, but with no pads and you've sort of got a rough approximation of what it is. Big hulking men and women smashing 10 bells out of each other. You can't help but feel the contact. And when you feel the contact viscerally, my style is to react to it. So my some of some of my rugby commentaries did have more 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 a feel of Jim Ross about them than maybe the football ones, but he, he's always in there somewhere. Considering that Jim Ross called like American football over here for, for a while, I think that he would be totally proud of, of that that correlation. Well, I would I would hope so. And you're right, you know, see, I didn't think of that. So he's someone who's 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 his style didn't change dramatically between the two mediums. So it, I guess it can be done. Yeah, no, I I grew up at a time like I think it was like the tail end of when he was calling because I grew up in Georgia and he was like a commentator for the Falcons, the, the Atlanta Falcons. And so like it was like a very like tail end, I think, of his, of his work where I actually kind of discovered, oh, wait, he's doing this, too. And that was even before I discovered like who he was. I wasn't even a wrestling fan at that point yet. So like, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. It's, it's, so his voice is, is it's interesting how a voice can be that hook, you know. Mm -hmm. And for me, because Michael Cole wasn't Jim Ross, every time for a while after Jim Ross went to pastures new and it was Michael Cole, I didn't like the product as much because he wasn't my guy. And now Michael Cole, you're going, man, some of your calls are extraordinary. And if Michael Cole's not there, you go, oh, okay, it feels different. And it's amazing how much having that voice that welcomes you in, whoever that voice may be for your chosen promotion makes you feel like, oh, I'm at home, I'm safe, this this is my space. Before you even see the wrestlers or the product, that person's got to be there, welcome you in, make you feel at home, and guide you through what you're seeing. It's it's a really underrated role. Hmm. It definitely is. It definitely is. Um, And I like to think that the more work that, that we do in our own spaces, the more we become that voice for, for people as well. You know, and I think that's a very valuable, very valuable position to to have <laughs> in yeah. these spaces, especially when talking to communities, the, the communities that we do talk to. You know, I'd agree. I'd a hundred percent agree for sure. Yeah. Well, Jack, as we kind of wind down here, um, I I have to ask, like, obviously you've had a ton of outstanding guests on on the podcast. Is there anyone from the pro wrestling space that you haven't had on that you or kind of like like bucket list names that you would want to have on the show. I think we've been quite lucky, you know. I mm -hmm. do think we've been quite lucky to get most of the folks on. What I need to do is basically get your QWI 200 and just start at the top and just work my way down because while a number of our guests have appeared on that list, the vast majority have not been on the podcast yet. So that will keep me going for about 150 days. 
I would say that's 150 <laughs> episodes. So that's however many more years we could just do on wrestling. Um, to be honest, no. What I what I like as well is I like getting folks back on to to talk about their experiences away from wrestling. We keep asking for Elton John, not mm-hmm. yet. Fingers crossed. We keep asking for Billie Jean King, not yet, but fingers crossed. But I don't know if you find this, but sometimes you obsess or you focus on the big names. And then someone who maybe isn't as prominent or is from a sport you don't know as much or, or a federation or, or a wrestler you've maybe only seen a couple of clips of, you think, well, I'll get them on. I don't know. I don't know much. Let's just see where it takes us. And they blow your socks off and you just go, that's it. That's why we do this, because we are constantly surprised by doing what we do. We're very fortunate like that. No, I mean, you're you're spot on in, in a lot of ways, especially early on in doing this show. Um, you know, I feel like anytime you start a show, you have like your notebook and you have like, OK, who are like the the 10 people that I know I want to have on this show and like and that sort of thing. And obviously, like I made that list and I've been lucky to have a number of the people that were on that list come on the show. But at the same time, like. I think as you as you start to get more reps in and you get more episodes out and more and more like find the place where you want this to be, like you start to realize that it's not just about like the big names. It is about like hearing everyone's story, like people that, you know, maybe aren't as as, like you mentioned, aren't as well known or don't have like the same like sort of like marquee factor to their name coming on. But somebody that you just kind of discover yourself and find interesting and you want to like just speak to them i think an episode that really stands out to me for that for myself is uh mad dog Connolly. you know i talked to him a couple of years back um and that that whole conversation was hardly even about like wrestling it was so much more about just like you know mental health and finding way like how finding ways of like channeling that through passions and through pro wrestling as his passion and that sort of thing and and that sort of stuff. And it was just like a very, very valuable, interesting conversation that honestly, I was already endeared to him as like a wrestling personality, just because I really liked his, how he carried himself in his work, but it made me endeared to him as a person even more so to the point yeah. that like, I haven't had the chance to meet him in person yet or anything, but like, like he, I don't know if he knows he's, he's one of my like favorite people now because of that conversation that i had no idea was going to happen whenever i had him on and like those are the valuable things like if the, if the conversation if you leave the conversation with something that is valuable to you that you hold on to you know that the people that are listening are going to as well and like that is probably like the biggest lesson that i have taken away from doing this show and you get better as well don't you you know when i first started many 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 years ago in journalism you have your list of five questions and you get very nervous if you're at question four and I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm going to dry up. It's going to be terrible. And then the more you go on, the more you relax into it and the more you understand the importance of listening. And sometimes Mm -hmm. someone will say something. I'm sure you had it in that conversation you were referencing there. Well, someone says something and you think you're turning left and then you end up going right. And it takes you in a completely different direction. And if it's because you're, it's because you're having a conversation. It's because you're not being a journalist interviewing and saying, right, five questions. I got to power through those no matter what. And then you get that valuable thing you mentioned there of I've come away with with a little gem just for me. I didn't know I was going to get, which I know the audience are going to love. And when you get that, I feel really protective of it. You always want to polish it up and give it to the audience. Go, look, look at this little treat this that someone has given us that, that we get to share together. It doesn't get better than that. 
No, it doesn't. This is the most gratifying part of the job. Honestly, completely agree. Completely. Yeah. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show again today and open up about, about yourself here on the show. Um, let everybody know where they can find you online and where they can check out your work. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, thank you for having me back on. I say it every time. Thank you for the exposure and the work you do, giving folks like me and in professional wrestling as a whole, uh, the platform you do, because it's extraordinary. If people want to follow uh, my stuff, Jack underscore Merley on the socials is where you'll find me. That's uh, where we talk about the LGBT sport podcast, which is uh, on every week, every Wednesday. And I also do a wrestling show called Earning the Push, which is slightly more sporadic because my co-host is a professional uh, athlete uh, named Charlie Beckett. And uh, we try to record every week, but sometimes Charlie will get injured. And when he injures himself, we don't record <laughs> because we can. So there's no episode last week because he injured himself. But uh, that is also wrestling stuff there. But um, yeah, if you follow me, Jack underscore Merley on the socials, hopefully you'll see some stuff you like. Awesome, Jack. Thank you again. Thank you. My thanks once again to Jack for taking the time to come on the show and talk about, you know, his journey in sports media and pro wrestling media and, you know, not to mention getting into the booth himself with WAW. Always a fun time when Jack is able to, to come on the show. And I don't know, I've just been really excited to get to, get to know Jack and for all of y'all to get to know Jack as well. Check out LGBT, the LGBT Sport Podcast um, uh, over at uh, BBC Sport. Uh, outstanding listen. Even the even the non wrestling episodes for because you know, I know there's a this, this is a wrestling audience, but the non wrestling episodes are outstanding as well. Um, so check that out over there. I know Poyle Damar was a recent guest on the show too, a very very good friend of this show. So definitely go check out Jack's work over there. Um, we will be back um, early next week with, uh, our episode talking about big gay brunch eight down in Tampa on Saturday, a lot of really interesting matches going on there. Uh, and I'm excited to, to see that event and talk about it. And then next week on the show, we're going to be kind of sort of a bridge between the end of journal January and into our, our regular, uh, conversations that we have on this show with a very um, exciting guest for, for me that I will uh, obviously reveal later on in, in the week. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, excited about that. Excited about where we're going as we kind of get on the, uh, on the pathway to, uh, to Philadelphia here um, for the celebration of, of, of independent wrestling that we're going to be experiencing out there. So, um, that's going to do it for us this week. Before we go, though, obviously, we need to shout out our roster of lovelies here on the show. If you want to join the roster of lovelies, you can head over to patreon.com slash LGBT ring pod and support us at the $3 tier. Um, you can have your name shouted out along the roster of lovelies on every episode of this show, uh, including names like Zach Walker, Alex E, Val Capone, and Jerry Legend. Um you can do that at the $3 tier. At the $5 tier, you get all of our bonus shows that we do over there, um, including episodes of Required Reading, which, you know, Hollis and I are preparing to record this month's episode here in the next couple of days, talking about Jumbo Saruta versus uh, Cactus Jack from 1991's All Japan Pro Wrestling Champion Carnival, alongside the 1986 uh, horror B-movie genre smash-up film that Hollis and I both hold very, very near and dear to our hearts, Night of the Creeps. 
Uh, that is going to be going up here at the end of January as we head into February there. And if you want to catch those, again, patreon.com slash LGBTRingPod. Subscribe at the $5 tier. You get all the past episodes of that as well as all of the new episodes coming up every month going forward. Um, obviously, if you can't support financially, I totally understand that situation. Word of mouth is always great. Tell a friend about the show. Spread the word on social media. Leave, uh, leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice. Um, every little bit of help in spreading the word about the show is always, always welcomed. And we always have a lot of thanks for, for that as well. Um, all right, well, let's get out of here. Uh, till next week, y'all stay messy, wash your hands, wear your mask, get vaccinated and boosted if at all possible. Same goes for monkeypox. And let's bring those MXM boys out the closet and get ready for a bussy beat down this weekend. Everybody's ready to die. Bye.